Exodus chapter 19, we are preaching our way through the gospel of Exodus. There's a book that I'm reading, and it's called The Gospel of Exodus. Uh, and I, I, love, I love that title for the book of Exodus. And uh, we're going to continue on. And this morning's sermon is entitled The Mountain of God. The Mountain of God. If, if, uh, if you were going to divide the book of Exodus into two parts, we just finished part one in verses in chapters 1 through 18, and we are getting ready to start part 2 here uh, in chapter 19 and forward. And I, it's important for us to remember the big picture story of the book of Exodus. The big picture story of the book of Exodus, as you may recall, is that God has delivered his people from Egypt, and he comes to dwell with them in the wilderness while they are on their way to dwell with him in the promised land. Delivered to dwell to dwell. Delivered to dwell to dwell. They've been delivered from Egypt. They are going through the wilderness as, the, as God tabernacles. He dwells with them. The pillar of fire, the pillar of cloud. God is dwelling with them as they are on their way to the promised land to dwell with him. Delivered to dwell to dwell. And you'll recall that that's your story and my story as well. For those of us who know Christ as our Savior, we've been delivered from Egypt. We've been delivered from our sins. We've been delivered from under the tyranny of Pharaoh. And we are wandering. We are, he dwells with us by his Spirit as we make our way through this wilderness on our way to the new heavens and new earth where we'll dwell with him forever. So the story of the people of Israel, the story of the book of Exodus, is our story as well. And so chapters 1 through 18 have gotten us out of Egypt and gotten us the first three months of wilderness wanderings. And now in chapter 19, there is something really big, something really significant that's going to kind of introduce. And really this sermon, we're going to preach through chapter 19, but I want to kind of introduce the second entire, the second part of the book of Exodus. We're going to kind of go chapter 19 all the way through chapter 40. We're not going to read all of it um, together this morning, but we are. I, I am going to kind of give a, a, a big picture um, sweep through the second half of the book of Exodus. And here, here's kind of the, the, the main point. It's a little bit different uh, of a main point than what I would normally have, but here's the main point this morning. We're going to see the people of God at the mountain of God receive the law of God for the worship of God. That, that's what's happening in the second half of the, the, the book of Exodus. The, the people of God come to the mountain of God where they receive the law of God for the worship of God. The people of God at the mountain of God receive the law of God for the worship of God. So now I am going to read chapter 19. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt. So the third new moon would mark three months of wilderness wandering. On that day, uh, on that day that they came into the wilderness of Sinai, they set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out, I'm sorry, I'm rereading the exact same thing I just said, and encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Israel, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. 
Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you, Moses, shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, so that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Not with a gun. They didn't have guns. With an arrow, presumably. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. That was not to have marital relations with each other. On the morning of the third day, imagine this. Our, our, our imaginations cannot do justice to what we're getting ready to read. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. I mean, so you're picturing this? I mean, again, Hollywood can't recreate this. The, the, there's, there's thunder and lightning and thick cloud and this heavenly noise that's unexplainable, right? Like there's this trumpet blaring. And they responded the same way you and I would have responded, right? The people trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain, right? They didn't go up onto the mountain. They didn't touch the mountain. At the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai, verse 18, was wrapped in smoke. Why? Because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. Now remember, this is a group of people who are used to walking through the desert with a pillar of, pillar of fire leading them during the day and a pillar of cloud at night. So they've grown maybe somewhat accustomed to these uh, signs of God's presence with them and leading them. But this is something altogether different. This is far more uh, fearsome. Verse 19, and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain 
And Moses went up, and the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord, to look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to the Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Father, I pray now that as we look into your word, you would help us to see very clearly uh, the, the terror of Mount Sinai and the awesomeness of Mount Sinai. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So the main point sentence that I told you earlier is going to be how we're going to follow uh, the, our way through this passage this morning. We're, we're talking about the people of God at the mountain of God receiving the law of God for the worship of God. And those are going to be the four points of uh, the sermon this morning as we make our way through this passage. And first we see here in Exodus chapter 19... God calling his people together and getting them ready for assembly. Verses 1 through 6 remind us of God's special relationship, God's covenant relationship with the people of Israel. Look at verse, um, verse 5. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all of the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God is saying to the people of Israel, everyone in the earth is mine. There is no other God besides me, but I have a special relationship with you. I called you out from amongst the other nations, and we only know that God chose the nation of Israel because in his wisdom and in his grace and in his sovereignty, they are the ones he called out. He called out, remember, Abraham from the land of Ur. God sovereignly chose, he elected, he foreknew Abraham and chose Abraham out of the nation, out of the country of Ur. There's no indication that Abraham was a follower of God and was such a devout man that God called him. God called Abraham because God is a God who chooses whom he will. And God chooses this ragtag bunch of people, uh, uh, this nation of Israel, the, the sons of Jacob, the 12 sons of Israel, who, who uh, when there is famine in the land, go into the, nation of, to the land of Egypt, and there they multiply and multiply and multiply and multiply. And by multiply, I don't mean 5 times 5 is 25 and 5 times 6 is 30. I mean, they have lots and lots of kids. And over the course of 400 years, now they're this mighty nation this nation that God loves, this nation that God loves in a special and unique way. And God is covenanting with Israel here. God has set up a special relationship, a partnership with the nation of Israel. And we're going we're to we literally read about it in verse 5, keep those who keep my covenant. This, this people, God has a special relationship with the people of Israel, and he is entering into a covenant partnership with them. And when you enter into a covenant, when you enter into a relationship with someone, some of you are, are part of a covenant with, with other people or with another person. Those of you who are married, whether you know it or not, you are in a covenant. You're in a relationship. You're in a partnership 
with your spouse. Or some of you are business partners with other people, and there's legal paperwork that shows that you are in relationship with each other. And there's a part of that covenant that you are ob- obliged to keep, and then there's a part of that covenant that the partner is obliged to keep as well. And here God is saying in verse 5 that if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, if you, then I, right? That's how that's how uh, these relationships often work. If you will do such and such, then I will do such and such. And God here is establishing a covenant with the people of Israel. And these people actually say to God, we will do all the words that the Lord commands us. These are the special people of God. And the people of God have been brought very specifically in, in a very special way to the mountain of God. If you look back in Exodus chapter 3, if you want to flip back there real quickly, in Exodus chapter 3, make sure, yeah, verse 12. Well, uh, in, in Exodus chapter 3, some of your Bibles will have a heading above verse 1, and it may say the burning bush. Okay? So here God shows up to Moses. Now, remember what we just read in Exodus chapter 19? God comes and fire and his presence comes to this mountain, and his presence is known to the people of God through fire and a mountain. Well, that's not the first time that God has shown up in fire on a mountain, right? In the burning bush, God shows up in fire on a mountain. And in uh, verse 12, it says this, God is talking. Uh, He said, but I will be with you to Moses, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you, that when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on a mountain. Does it say that? Does it say serve God on a mountain? It doesn't say a mountain. It says this mountain. Brothers and sisters, in Exodus chapter 19, do you know where they are? They are on this mountain. Moses is aware of what's going on. He remembers back to when God showed up to him in the burning bush and God said, you are going to go and deliver my people. And Moses says, no way, Jose, well, say Jose, no way, Yahweh, I'm not doing that. I've never said that before in my life, no way, Yahweh. And I don't mean it disrespectfully. I, I, like he, he, God is calling him to do a thing and he's like, no, I'm not doing that. You can send somebody else. And God says, no, I'm going to send you. You're going to be the one. And in fact, you're going to know that all this is going to come true when all, there's coming a day where you're going to have the nation of Israel right here right back here on this mountain. And God now has delivered this mass of probably a couple of million of people, and they are here on that mountain, Mount Sinai. And we don't know the exact location, scholars and archaeologists and people who study mountains. There's probably a name for them, too. Um, they, they've taken a couple different guesses. One is in the southernmost tip of the Sinai Peninsula, and others think it's maybe further north. I'm not exactly sure, and I'm not positive that that matters necessarily, But here, God's people are on this special mountain, and God shows up in a way that is both, I like to use both these words, terrifying and wonderful. Do you remember in the movie The Wizard of Oz at the very end? The Wizard of Oz is a weird movie, right? I mean, it just is. It captures our attention when we're children. You watch it now, and you're like, man, that's weird. There's a lot of weird stuff going on in this. But at the very end of the movie, the wizard, uh, the Dorothy and her compatriots show up there, and they, they stand before the great, is it the great Oz? Is that what it's called? He's called? Okay. They stand before the great, and there's smoke, right? And 
thundering and lots of loud theatrics. And then I, I, it's been a long time since I've seen. Does Toto run around behind and like pull the curtain back? Okay, I'm seeing nodding heads, so I'm remembering this accurately. And Dorothy and them, they see that there's just a regular old dude behind the curtain, and he's making all this big theatrical performance to make himself look bigger, badder, and better than he actually is. That is in no way whatsoever what's going on here. What's going on here is 180 degrees the opposite of that. See, what, the, what Oz was doing is he was trying to exaggerate his greatness. And we are told in this passage that what God is doing is like he's actually toning it down. Because everybody would die otherwise. Like you don't get to look at him or, or, or you'll die. So God is going to cover himself. He's going to show this is really me. But instead of letting you see the fullness of who I am, how about this? How about fire, smoke, earthquakes, blasting trumpets, and it's going to terrify you, but, I, but I'm not going to kill you with my awesomeness. God, God is actually toning things down so that the people of Israel can in any way, shape, or form comprehend them without perishing. The people of God are here at the mountain of God. And again, I mean, we, I, I'm not going to take the time to read through the, all of those verses again, but we see the awesomeness of God on display here. I'm afraid, brothers and sisters, that sometimes when we picture God, we only see what are the, the kind of the photograph. Well, there's no photographs of Jesus, obviously. Um, but the renditions, the renditions, the, the painted, and he's in a light blue robe, and he's, he looks like a you know, middle-aged white European male, and he's got long hair and blue eyes, and, and he's got a lamb tucked underneath his arm, right? And you would look at him and go, there's nothing particularly fearsome about him. But brothers and sisters, God is a triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and they are one God. And we learn about the character of God when we see him in the fullness of who he is. God is giving a little, a little slice of the fullness of who he is. And when we talk, we talk about fearing the Lord. And I think sometimes we think, eh, why would I fear the Lord? Right? I mean, he's just, he's kind of like a, a grandpa in the sky. But I think, brothers and sisters, when uh, the children of Israel were done with this day, if you would have asked them to help you understand what it means to fear the Lord, I think words like fearful would have been one of their understandings of how they had encountered God uh, here on, on God's mountain. The people of God are here at the mountain of God, and we're going to look at this much more in the weeks to come, but at the mountain of God, the people of God are receiving the law of God. This is point number three, the law of God. And, and we're not going to take time to go through the next, uh, let's see, five, six chapters. But let me just read to you a little bit uh, of chapter 20. God spoke these words, saying, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. First of all, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath 
or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shall you labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your sons or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. And we call those ten things what? Yeah, the ten, the ten commandments or the ten laws. And that's what they are. We're gonna we're gonna take time uh, here in a few weeks to or in a week or two to start those, and we're gonna work our way through um, all ten of those. But but continuing even after chapter twenty, again in your Bible you may have um, some uh, some headings above the chapters. Right? So in chapter 21, you may have a heading that says, Laws about slaves. In the end of chapter 21, laws about restitution. In the middle of verse 20, or chapter 22, laws about social justice. And then the, uh, midway through verse, uh, chapter 23, laws about Sabbath and festival. And so we realized pretty quickly that the Ten Commandments, the Ten Laws, aren't, they're not the only laws that Moses is receiving that God is giving to the people of Israel. So what's the significance? What's going on here? Do the Ten Commandments still apply to us today? Is the Old Testament old and now the New Testament is what we operate according to? I mean, there's laws about slaves and I mean, does that, is that refer, like, do I apply that to my kids or do I apply that to my coworkers or you know, my employees? Like, what, what exactly is, is all that? Then you read through some of this stuff and it gets a little bit crazy, right? Chapter 22, verse 10, if a man gives to his neighbor a donkey or an ox or a sheep or any beast to keep it safe, and it, right? And you're like, well, I don't, I don't know the, you know, when there's the bride price for virgins and like, what's going on here? Well, we are going to take time to go through that. But here's, here's what is important for us to understand here this morning. When God enters into special relationship with people, after He enters into special relationship with them, He gives them a way to interact with Him. There are expectations. There are desires. There are laws that we interact with when we are in relationship with God. There are laws that we seek to keep in order to please Him and for our own good and for the good of humanity. These laws do not... We don't keep the laws in order to interact with Him, right? When is God giving them the Ten Commandments? Before He delivered them? 
Did he give them the Ten Commandments and say, no, if you'll keep these for 10 years, keep the Ten Commandments for 10 years and I'll deliver you. Keep the Ten Commandments for 10 days and I'll deliver you. I need all of you to keep them for 10 minutes. And right, like, that's not how it works. He delivers them because he's a saving God and then gives them a way to interact with him through, through these laws. And here's what's really interesting. In chapter 19, which is what we're in this morning, chapter 19, verse 8, all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Now, look, flip over in chapter 24 of the same book, Exodus 24, the end of verse 3. Exodus 24, the end of verse 3. All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Verse 7, the end of verse 7, chapter 24, verse 7. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. This is not a trick question. Did the Israelites keep those promises? (laughs) I mean, like not even close, not at all, none of them. Not even for, I mean, like not one single one of them for really any length of time whatsoever. And you remember that God had established a covenant with them. If you keep my laws, then you will be this kind of people to me. So we got a problem here. We got a problem that starts almost immediately. God is saying, I'm going to have this relationship with you. I'm giving you these commands to obey. I expect you to, oh yeah, we're going to obey them. And we're going to see real quickly, I mean, you you see it in Exodus, but Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, I mean, it becomes very clear right away these people are making graven images, right? They're ignoring the Sabbath day. They're not honoring their father and mother. They're lying. They're stealing. They're committing adultery. I mean, and this is all part of like the newly formed nation of Israel. At the mountain of God, God is calling a people, and He is giving them, uh, is entering into a relationship with them in a unique way. The nation of Israel is being birthed in a very special way, is being sealed here at this mountain of God. And the law of God is given them in part to help the people of Israel with the worship of God. That brings me to point number four. And by the way, you're like, sweet, we're almost done. We're probably a little over halfway, but I'm, I'm actually going to go through all four points again, so, so hang, hang with me. I don't want to deceive you into thinking we're almost done. Point number four is the worship of God. So again, we're doing a quick perusal through your Bibles. Go to chapter 25. Go to chapter 25 of Exodus. And chapter 25 begins some really, really uh, fascinating reading. Right? In chapter 25, we start learning about the construction of the sanctuary, the Ark of the Covenant, the, the elements that are part of the tabernacle, the tabernacle itself, right? And so I'm sure that for your devotions this morning, as you prepare to come this morning, you know, Exodus chapter 26 would have been you know, just part of what warmed your heart for worship with the Lord. Verse 2, the length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits, and the breadth of each curtain four cubits, and all the curtains shall be the same size. Amen. 
five curtains shall be coupled to one another, and the other five curtains shall be coupled to one another. Boy, that, like, we don't see that, like, on a plaque in your kitchen, right? Like, that's not a, these aren't the coffee mug verses, right? These aren't the verses that are going to end up on a t-shirt somewhere. What, what's going on here in these chapters, chapters, really kind of chapter 25 through the end of the book? What's God doing here? Oh, we, I promise you we are going to have fun when we get to these chapters. They are far, they are far more um, full of truth and value and help for us. But what God is doing is he's laying out the, uh, the expectation of how he wants Israel to worship him. And, and it's not only is it important for us to worship the one true God, but it's important for us to worship the one true God the way the one true God calls us to worship him. And here, as the nation of Israel is being formed, he's giving them some very specific instructions about how the tabernacle is supposed to be constructed and who can enter the tabernacle and all the details of the tabernacle. uh, So the worship of God is what God is ultimately after here. So let me make a very clear point. The deliverance of the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt was not God's primary, primary objective. God, God's primary objective, primary, his number one objective was not just make sure the people of Israel have an easier life. I'm going to get them out of Egypt and then kind of let them, like God's not in heaven going, I'm all about those people. The giving of the law was not what God was ultimately about. God loved Israel, but Israel was not the ultimate objective. Israel was not the thing that God was most primary. Uh, The glorifying of this nation is not what God was after. What was God after? He he was after the, the glorifying them, glorifying Him. His glory. God's glory was the ultimate objective, and so he delivers the nation of Israel out of the land of Egypt through miraculous events, and he brings them here to the mountain of God, and he gives them a little glimpse of his greatness, and he gives them a law, and he gives them a way for them to approach him now and worship because he wants their hearts to be full of him. This is what God is after. God is not an egomaniac, but God's glory is the number one thing that God is after. That's his primary objective. Your objective, your, the greatest thing that you can do with your life is to glorify God because God is the greatest thing. Now, what if God glorified someone other than himself? Then he would be stooping to taking something of lesser significance and putting it in greater significance. But God knows that He is of greatest significance, and He wants you to live your lives full with hearts full of Him. Okay, so we've got the people of God at the mountain of God receiving the law of God for the worship of God. Now let's take the story of Israel and let's, let's tease out some application and understanding for us here today. Brothers and sisters, just as God had chosen the nation of Israel to be his people, so today, obviously, uh, uh, he told Abraham that through his descendants, all the nations of the world will be blessed. I don't think there's anyone in here who is Jewish. There there may be some some with a, a small amount of Jewish blood in you, but most of us are Gentiles. 
And thankfully, the gospel has come to Gentiles. God's people are no longer strictly identified through national identity. No, God calls you and I his chosen, and he actually uses the same language. In Titus chapter 2, verse 14, and if you're a note taker, you may want to jot these down, or even in your Bible, in, next to maybe in the margin or next to a verse here in chapter 19, you may want to write down Titus 2, 14, which says, uh, who, gave himself to, uh, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself, to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Why does God save people? He saves people to be his own possession. Again, look in verses, um, verse 5 of chapter 19. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. Titus 2.14, he, he, uh, he has saved people for his own possession. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people, here it is again, for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness, out of Egypt, and into his marvelous light. There is no way that those who, uh, as Peter is writing this first Peter, um, there's no way that those original recipients of this passage would not have been thinking about God's calling Israel out of darkness into light and uh, a people for his own possession and a royal priesthood. Look, again, I just read to you from first, I get so excited about this that I talk too fast. Take a breath and slow down for a second, okay? I have, I actually, I have time to do this. First Peter 2, 9 calls believers a royal priesthood. Look in verse 6 of Exodus 19, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Peter is using the same exact language that God used of the nation of Israel to refer to God's people today. We are a possession, we are his own possession. We are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And just like I said a moment ago, we've been delivered to worship God and to glorify, to, like the nation of Israel were to have hearts full of the glory of God. First Peter 2, verse 9 ends with, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So just like God chose Israel, out of all the other nations, God chose Israel out of his wisdom and his love and his grace, so God chooses his people now. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit, and faith in the truth. John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. Romans 8, 29 and 30, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son 
so that he would be firstborn among many brethren. These whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. And through the years, there's been a great debate between God's sovereign election of people and man's independent choosing of God. Brothers and sisters, there is no debate. It is clear in Scripture. God is the one who chooses those whom he will save. God, choose, God chose Israel out from amongst the other nations. God chooses those who will come to him. John 15, 16, it's in, a, it's in an address that's given to his disciples, but I believe the, the concept is true in many places in scriptures. You did not choose me, but I chose you. It is not those who have chosen him. We choose him. Why? Because we love him because he first he first loved us. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. We are enemies of God. And God comes and quickens and enlivens and saves. These are all Bible verses. These aren't doctrinal positions. These are Bible verses. And I want you to feel a deep and wonderful security in this. The nation of Israel were God's people, not because they were impressive not because they were smarter than the other nations or stronger or more obedient. We see real quickly they are not more obedient. In fact, many scholars even believe that like as, as Moses is delivering the people of, e- of Israel out of the land of Egypt, like they're going because they're happy to be out of Egypt, but like they, they don't even... Chapter 19 at Mount Sinai is where God is making this point that like I am the one monotheistic, true God. They've been brought up, and they've, they've spent 400 years in polytheism. Like, they, they know about this Yahweh. Maybe he's like the strongest of the rest. And here he's saying, no, no, no. I own all the nations. All the nations are mine. I am the one true God. The, the people, even these Israelites, are not devout theologians who understand the nuances of, of the God that they're following. God is calling them out And he's beginning a good work of wilderness wandering for them. I want us to feel a deep and profound security in this. I also think we need to feel a deep and profound humility in this. You didn't choose God because you're smarter than everyone else, because you're wiser than everyone else, because you are a more obedient person than everyone else. You chose him because he first chose you. And I also think not only should we feel a deep, wonderful security in this and a deep, profound humility in this, but I think we need to lose our individuality when we understand that what God is doing is choosing a nation in the nation of Israel, and he's choosing a bride. So often in the New Testament, when we read the scriptures, we think that God is referring to me as an individual Christian. God is referring to his people He's calling a church. He loves a church. And he does love you individually. There's no question about that. But our identity is part of the people of God. God is saving a group of people. He has and is saving a group, a bride. So we see God's people in the nation of Israel, and we are the the people of God here as his redeemed. We see that they were given his law. Right, The Ten Commandments and then the rest of the chapters even after the Ten Commandments. And you and I are given God's law as well. And again, for those of us who know Him as our Savior, His law comes after we become His children. 
And his law can be summed up in two big commands. What are, what are the two governing? I, I teach a, the junior high Bible class at DCA, and I have two rules of operation for my class. What are my two? I got some junior hires right down here. What are my two rules, Evangeline? Love God and love others. Now, I didn't make those up. I, yeah, I didn't come up with those. In fact, the, I mean, any church you go to, any Christian you talk to, just about, can recite for you the two. When Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment, he gives a, an answer that a lot of us pastors would give. Well, here's the greatest, but this is also the greatest as well, right? Um, loving God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like unto it that you love your neighbor as yourself. And did you know that the Ten Commandments can really be divided into those two big groups as well? The first four deal with love for God. The last six deal with my vertical, uh, horizontal relationships. I always get vertical and horizontal mixed up. Our horizontal relationships with other people. Even the Ten Commandments themselves are clearly a love for God and a love for others. And we've been given God's law as well. We've been given God's law And we are called upon to worship God. The right response for those of us who have been saved by God is for us to worship Him and to worship Him rightly. So we saw God's people were given God's law in order to to worship God rightly. But I left out one of the four. When we walked through the people of Israel, we said it was God's people on the mountain of God receiving the law of God in order to worship God. And now when I've applied it to ourselves, I said it's the people of God having been given the law of God in order to worship God. So which one did I leave out? The mountain. I didn't leave it out. I, wanted to, I want the mountain last. The, Exodus 19 is a mountain pinnacle in the book of Exodus. It is literally a mountain. It's one of the most significant mount moments in the Scriptures. We see here in Exodus chapter 19 that God comes down in fearsome wrath to this mountain, or not wrath, excuse me, but in a, in a fearsome, awesome, that's the word I'm looking for, in an awesome way to the mountain. And he establishes covenant with his people, and he tells them, here are the rules and regulations that I expect you to keep as part of this covenant. And the people all say, we will do them. And then the people go on to break those laws. On the mountain, the people got a glimpse of the God that they were following, and it was terrible, and it was wonderful. It was terrifying, and it was awe-inspiring. And they entered into covenant with him, and they broke the covenant. They didn't keep his commands. And you and I are just like they were. We're just like they were. And the commands of God are broken by you and I daily. And so I said earlier, this leaves Israel in big trouble, and it leaves you and I in big trouble as well. It leaves both of us in big trouble. But God had a plan. Was this the last mountain in which God was going to interact with his people? No, no, far from it. He would send a man who would keep the covenant perfectly. All the laws of the covenant were going to be kept. The people of Israel said, we will do it, and immediately started not doing it. But God has entered into this covenant, and God is going to keep his end of the covenant. And so the nation of Israel fails, and God sends one Israelite 
who is 100% man, but he's also 100% God. And this man shows up and all of the laws of the covenant are kept perfectly. Do you know, my junior hires, I know they know the answer to this. Do you know why Jesus came for 33 years before he went to Mount Calvary? For 33 years, he was keeping all the laws of God. And he was keeping them perfectly as the perfect Israelite, as the perfect man, as the perfect substitute for you and for me. Jesus comes, honor father and mother, no problem. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy? No problem. Have no other gods before me? No problem. Check, 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 check. You and I, X, 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 X. Jesus Christ comes. Check, 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 check. He is the man who actively obeys all of the laws of God. He comes and keeps covenant for us covenant breakers. And then he would go to a different mountain of God, not Mount Sinai, but a different mount, the one we call Mount Calvary. And he goes to that mountain. This one wasn't in the wilderness. This one was in Jerusalem. And on Mount Calvary, we get a glimpse of the God that we are following. The Israelites got a glimpse of their great God on Mount Sinai with the, with the thunder and the fire and the earthquake and the trumpet blast, and they are left trembling. They see the awesomeness of God there at Mount Sinai. And brothers and sisters, we, with humility in our hearts and joy in our hearts, kneel before Mount Calvary, and we get a glimpse of the God that we follow. We get a glimpse of Jesus Christ and the work that he came in his perfectly lived life and his now sacrificial death on Mount Calvary. He comes and he keeps the covenant for us and then he pays the price for our disobeying the covenant. This is what Jesus does. That's why Jesus is a savior. That's why when you turn from your sin and put faith in Christ, Jesus Christ gives you righteousness that he earned and he gives it to you. And you receive it. Throughout the Bible, especially in the New Testament, we're described as being in Christ. So when God looks at Keldon, Keldon in my Bible class, he was literally helping me with the uh, illustration on Monday or Tuesday, whenever it was. Um, uh, so when God, well, no, you were Christ and I was me. I was the sinner and you were Christ. And so I got his righteousness and he got my sin and he took my sin away. And it was paid for on the cross. And then I got his righteousness. And so when God looks at me, you know what God sees? If, I, if I'm holding Christ's righteousness, you know what God sees? He sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's why he lets you and I into heaven. We're never, ever good enough. We don't get saved and then be good enough. And then, and then we stand before God and go, Okay, I think I, I know you saved me, but I think I've been good enough mostly. I mean, there was a few rough spots back in 83. There was a little bit of a rough spot. I mean, 2020 was really rough, but, I mean, every, it was rough for everybody. It was COVID, right? Like, no, 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 we're not impressive. When God looks at us, for those who know, him as, who know Christ as their Savior, he sees the righteousness of his son, and he says, come on in. Yeah, you've been a rascal, but you are in Christ. You have put your faith in him. You have, with his help, tried to live according to the law and, and worship me appropriately out of love, not out of earning it, but out of love. 
On Mount Calvary, we get a glimpse of the God we're following. Same God. Mount Sinai didn't exaggerate God's power, and Mount Calvary doesn't exaggerate God's power either, or his love. We see it most clearly on display there. Jesus Christ, the perfect Israelite, the perfect man, the only one who ever actually lived the Christian life. He went to the mountain of God and he took upon himself the wrath of God against sin, the God of fire, the God of thunder, the God of smoke, the God of blasting trumpet power poured out on his son the, the punishment for the sins of the world. So that if you will turn from your way and put faith in Jesus Christ, you will not face that fearsome wrath. And if you don't, if you go on in your rebellion against him, you will face that wrath and you will not stand. You will be crushed. You will be damned. So what? So what about all this? Well, if you've never turned from your sins and put faith in Christ, then repent and believe and take upon yourself the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And it will really belong to you. The big fancy theological word is imputation. It's the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. For those who do know Christ as their Savior, walk in the goodness of the gospel. Know that God sees you as owning the righteousness of his covenant-keeping Son, Jesus Christ. And now, out of love and out of joy and out of a desire to please him, keep God's laws and worship him rightly. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Father, I am thankful for how you have taught us here in the book of Exodus, how you are teaching us in the book of Exodus, how great the gospel is. These are not coincidentals. I'm not drawing inappropriate lines from Exodus to Mount Calvary, from Mount Sinai to Mount Calvary. I'm thankful that your word is so clear. Father, if there is anyone in here this morning who has not turned from their way, who, who, who is still under the condemnation of their guilt of breaking the covenant, God, I pray that they would put their faith in you and receive the righteousness of your son, Jesus Christ, the perfect covenant keeper. I pray that they would do that today. Lord, for those in here this morning who hear a sermon like this, God, I pray that, and they do know you as their Savior, I pray that it would encourage them, that it would strengthen them, that they would leave here not encouraged in their strength or their way or their ability, but just incredibly humbled and happy and holy as they consider the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friend, if you're here this morning and you have never turned and put faith in Christ, uh, do it today. If you'd like to talk with someone, you're welcome to talk with me or one of the other pastors here. We would love to sit down with you and open our Bibles and answer any questions that you may have about these things. The music team's going to come. We're going to close in a final song. Um, you, can, you don't have to bow your heads or close your eyes. Sorry, I didn't give you that cue. Um, we're going to end with the song, Holy, Holy, Holy. I think it's a good song for us to, to end with as we, let, let's not, let, let's hold the, the pinnacles of two mountains in our minds as we leave this morning. Let's remember the awesomeness of God on Mount Sinai and the love and awesomeness of God on Mount Calvary. Okay, And as we, as we dismiss together this morning, we'll sing and then Will will come and close us uh, in a word of prayer. 
uh, and then I'll meet with those who can help uh, help um, uh, Kathleen move. But let's let's think with, on uh, Sinai and Calvary and sing of the holiness of our God. Let's stand and we'll sing together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your law, and we thank you for the, the glimpse at your nature that your law gives us, and that, that we can view your holiness and your perfection. Father, we confess to the sin of being absolutely unchanged by the knowledge of your holiness, Father. I pray that you would convict us of this, and that with appropriate fear that we would, we would drive our lack of, our, our lack of reverence for you. I pray that you would drive that out of our hearts, Lord, and that we would see you as holy, that we would no longer just acknowledge it in song or with our lips, but that our lifestyle would reflect who you are and your nature that you have revealed to us through your law, Father. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen.